You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Criminals have obviously, I say all the time, I'm like, they're not going to go and get an honest job. They're going to try and figure out how to make money elsewhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations all over the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Stacy Nash. She's head of fraud and central operations at USAA, We're going to be discussing romance and sweetheart scams. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories, we got a little bit of follow-up. We received a a kind letter from one of our listeners who had a question for us. This person uh, asked that we not reveal their name, so we're going to honor that request. Yes, of course. Uh, I'm going to read parts of the the letter here. Uh, There's more to it, but uh, just for the, the, the interest of time, I've distilled it a bit. Uh, And they write, during the Easter time, two universities in Dublin got attacked by ransomware. I am a student at one of the universities that got attacked by the ransomware, and I have friends who are students in the other one. Now we are sharing the same feeling of what the hell is going on and how is it going to be? Because things are pretty confusing. Yeah. They say, I know it might sound rude at the first time, but what is calling my attention is the fact that how people are dealing and not disclosing any important information that we might need. The systems went down between the 1st and 3rd of April 2021. What we thought being an instability became a ransomware attack that was widely noticed through universities' social media. One of the universities are updating their website, but the other is not. But there is not any communication about what happened through our emails. Most of us only received an email saying, you must change your password now, a few days ago. Now, most part of the systems have been restored, but can I trust it? Now, this is a really interesting aspect of this, Joe, where right. a university student, and of course, this is a an environment that you are intimately familiar with. Steeped part in the of, daily, Dave. Yes, the Johns Hopkins. <laughs> right. But the students are very much dependent on the infrastructure that the university provides. And when a breach happens like this, how do you restore trust in the students' minds? That's an excellent question, Dave. Uh, and the listener's question, can can I trust it? Uh, my answer to that is uh, you can trust it as much as you did before, I think. Uh, hmm. What I will say here, though, is it sounds like these universities are not doing their communication part of this well. Anytime you suffer one of these attacks, you absolutely need to have communication as part of the response. Your incident response team has to have that on their docket of things to do. It's got to be there. And I'm, I can imagine that it's very frustrating when you don't hear things from people, particularly when you're a student in the university and these ransomware attacks frequently turn out to be breaches as well. Has your right. personal information been compromised? Has somebody gotten that? What I would say to anybody anywhere is my first boss in any computer job told me, said the, Jeff Russell said, the first four rules of computing are backup, 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 and backup. Make sure you have your data backed up in some way that you can take care of it. Perhaps the university has your data backed up. That might be one of your backups. You might have an Mm -hmm. offline backup. That could be another backup. There might be things in the cloud. All these things are, you know, you have to have your data in different places in order to protect it. Can you trust it? I mean, you can trust it to some degree, but you should have contingency plans. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a, a good way that you could get answers uh, if you're not satisfied with what, how they're communicating. I wonder if you could reach out if the university has a, 
you know, an on-campus news publication, something like that, you know, perhaps they would have the influence to be able to get more answers than just an, an individual student would who was yeah. reaching out. Yeah. If you have a campus newspaper, I would definitely go in and ask them. Uh, a lot yeah. of times, though, you find that they are really hamstrung by the administration of the university, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I also wonder, being in Dublin, you know, how much do they fall under GDPR uh, for disclosure? They are completely under GDPR. They are under the under the European Union and under the governance of that law. Yeah. Well, and I guess the advice also to the university is, you know, the more forthright you are and the more you share information along the way, yeah. you're going to maintain the trust of your users. Correct. Rather than them having to guess and, and you know, it's that whole nature abhors a vacuum and a vacuum of information. People are going to start filling in <laughs> Their right. own imagination. Exactly. And and I'm not saying that these universities are behaving in a malicious manner. They're probably not. They're probably in a state of trying to resolve the issue. And in that yeah. state, you know, they're working hard to do that, but they're not. Part of that has to be communication. There has to be somebody who's assigned to find out what's going on and then communicate that out to the user population of the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, our listener for sending in that question. We would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's move on to some stories. Why don't you kick things off for us this week? Dave, my story comes from the New York Times, uh, written by Alex Marshall. Let me ask you, are you familiar with the Bally Gifford Prize? I am not, no. Uh, Of course not, Dave, because it is a respected British award for nonfiction writing. (laughs) (laughs) I I was also not familiar with this until I read this article, so (laughs) fair (laughs) enough. Never heard of it. But these organizers of this prize got an excited email from an author, Craig Brown, who had been awarded the prize the night before, and he won the prize for a book about some 1960s boy band called 150 Glimpses of the Beatles. The email said, words cannot even begin to describe how over the moon I am, right? And Hmm. Then the email went on to say, I'm currently experiencing a few hiccups with my bank account, but also with the pandemic. Could the organizers transfer the prize money, 50,000 pounds, which is about $69,000, to my PayPal account, if that's okay? The prize's executive director, Toby Mundy, said the message was written with tremendous confidence. uh, And there was a bit of zoosh about that last sentence. But... Hmm. Toby was wise to the scam, and he actually called Brown, right, called uh, the author, and said, uh, hey, what's going on here? I got this email from you. And guess what, Dave? (laughs) Wait for it. Yeah, the email was a scam. Someone was trying to steal the money from him. So (laughs) Toby Mundy did exactly the right thing here. He picked up the phone, called the author, and said, you're you're asking me to to send this money to your PayPal account? And the author was like, no, I wouldn't ever do that. Uh, Just write me a check. He goes, ah, good, I caught the scam in process, and now I'm not falling for it. But over the past year, at least five British book prizes have been targeted by the same scam. And in Hmm. March of 2020, the Rathbones Folio Prize, I love these British names, said 30,000 pounds went to a scammer posing as author Valeria Luiselli, who had just won the award for her novel, uh, Lost Children Archive. And that organizer had to find another 30,000 pounds to pay Luiselli because they had sent the, the money to a scammer. Wow. And they, they said they, they absorbed the cost by cutting costs elsewhere. So I don't know what that means. Did they have to fire somebody because of that? I, who knows? <laughs> yeah. It, it, no matter what, it's not good. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, anytime 30,000 pounds leaves your bank account, uh, it's bad. 
right? Mm -hmm. The scammer does not appear to have targeted any prizes outside of Britain. And the National Book Awards in the United States and five other awards in the United States have not been contacted, nor has the Nobel Institute, and they run the Nobel Prize for Literature. Susan Swan, who is a novelist who helped found the Carol Shields Prize for Fiction in North America, is quoted in this article, and she says... Literary phishing is a diabolical cybercrime because most of us expect fraudsters to be working elsewhere and not reading about books. This is the hackers are not interested in me argument, right? Right. And one of the first things I tell people when I'm talking to them is, yeah, hackers are interested in you because you have money. You Mm -hmm. have money. And that's what they're out to do. They're out to monetize their activity, just like everybody else in the world, except rather than being legitimate operators, they're criminals. And they're going to try to steal money from you. Swan goes on to say, we'll solve the problem by issuing checks to our winners and avoid online payments. I think that's a great solution. That's the perfect solution for this. Don't do anything other than write a check. Well, it sounds like we've got a fraudster who has hit on something that works. You know, I don't know if it's an individual or a group or whatever, but they seem to be making their way through this community. And I suppose at some point... Word's going to get out into the community, and if it hasn't already, and they're going to, and the fraudster will have to move on to a different community. But yeah. they've they've clearly keyed into a, a technique that is effective. Right. They've they've done this five times and gotten thirty thousand pounds out of it, which yeah. is a mm-hmm. lot of money, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, they they don't know where this fraudster is, but they think he might be in Britain. You know, who knows? Monday said they reported the matter to the police, but this is interesting. Nobody at the police responded. Hmm. Before that, he tried catching the fraudster himself. He asked for a phone number so he could confirm some details but the, uh, of the PayPal transcript, but the scammer never wrote back. So, hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, maybe if you work with PayPal, because PayPal requires a lot of information to set up an account, as I recall. I haven't, it's been years since I set up my account, but you have to provide legitimate information. That money has to go somewhere, usually mm-hmm. to a bank account that's associated with something. Of course, that could all, all be fraudulently established as well. So, yeah, could be making use of a money mule. We've seen that many times as well. You just never know. All right. Oh, it's an interesting story for sure. My story comes from the LA Times, uh, and (laughs) the title of it is Scammers Can't Get No Satisfaction. Uh, And it has to do with a Rolling Stones tribute band who is among several bands who are targeted in a fake check scheme. Joe, have you ever uh, been out to see any of these tribute bands? No, Dave, I've never been to see a tribute band. I like to go see the original band, and if I can't do that anymore, I just accept the fact that I've missed my opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, I I, I saw a uh, Queen tribute band, uh, I guess right before we went into lockdown for pandemic, and I have to say, it was way better than I had expected it to be. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, they were really good, and and they sounded like Queen. I mean, the key to a good Queen tribute band is you got to have a killer Freddie Mercury, and they did. Absolutely. So (laughs) so it was really quite a lot of fun, but I digress. Uh, So this story is about some folks who uh, have this tribute band and uh, someone reached out to them pretending to be a nonprofit in Hong Kong. And they reached out to the band and said that uh, they wanted to pay them for a 35 minute set that would be streamed to a Hong Kong fundraising event. Okay. But it gets a little more complicated than that because okay. the folks who claim to be running this foundation in Hong Kong were going to pay the band $30,000 for the set, uh, which the band was, was pleased with. That's a, you know, it was a good payday for them. Right. But they were also going to send the band an additional $75,000, which they wanted the band to donate to the foundation. 
So the sweetener here was that the band would then be able to take credit for a charitable donation, which would be good for the band. It would be helpful for their taxes and all that sort of thing. The folks who wrote this article spoke with a talent agent who said that this sort of thing is not unusual, that uh, folks providing extra funds for an artist to donate to charity, it's not unheard of. Said he's negotiated similar deals for other clients. Okay, so this is something that actually goes on in the music industry. Evidently it does, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they received a cashier's check for $101,000, and the person representing the band said, I was expecting a bank wire. A cashier's check made the whole thing a little sketchy. Uh, The check was drawn on an account from Commerce Bank, and it was sent via FedEx from Long Beach, California, not Hong Kong. Mm Mm-hmm. So the person went to a Bank of America branch to deposit the funds into the client account, and he told the teller that he was suspicious about the check's authenticity. And the bank teller ran a couple of checks and said, the check's good. So the band's rep uh, emailed the foundation, said that he deposited the check. The foundation responded and said that he needed to wire the $75,000 donation immediately, that very day. Right. Now, the representative of the band was really suspicious. So right. he contacted Commerce Bank and shared a copy of the check, and they said it was definitely a fraudulent check. Uh-huh. Uh, they even got the font on the check wrong. Okay. So he contacted the FBI. In the meantime, the foundation is becoming more and more aggressive, insisting that the $75,000 be wired right away. Right. Uh, they said if he didn't send the money that day, he'd stop, they would stop payment on the check. And they also said... There were children who needed the funds, Joe, mm. children who needed yes. the funds. <laughs> They're hitting on all the cylinders for uh, your desire to help somebody, your uh, desire to get some money, and uh, maybe now they're trying to say, uh, we're going to scare you a little bit. They're doing everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out that the whole thing was a check fraud scam. Can you explain that, Joe? Do you understand how those work? Yeah, yeah. A check fraud scam is a, um, generally they don't involve cashier's checks. It's like a business check that is drawn on a fake account. And the idea is I'm the scammer. And I say to Dave, Dave, here's a check for a thousand dollars, but I need you to uh, wire $600 of it to person C, right? You go to the bank and you say, uh, Joe gave me this check for a thousand dollars. And they go, okay, that's fine. Your funds are available. And then you go immediately and wire the $600 to person C who's actually working with me. And then when the check bounces and, and you don't have the funds anymore in your bank account, the bank still expects you to pay them the $600 that you wired out. So you've been right. scammed out of $600. Right. That $600 comes out of your account. Correct. Exactly. And the scammers get that. Yeah. So that's basically what was going on here. Um, uh, on a much larger scale, too. And evidently, they were targeting uh, several different music acts. There was another one uh, called the Mariachi Rosas Divinas, which was mm. an all-female mariachi band. They got tagged also. They were attempted to uh, to rip off about fifty five grand from them. Huh. So these scammers seem to be taking advantage of the fact that uh, these acts are looking for work. You know, they give them a very uh, lucrative offer to do something that's streaming because you can't perform live in a lot of cases these days. With, right. With COVID and everything. Uh, I mean, it's interesting too that this organization uh, claims to be out of Hong Kong. Um, the checks are coming from the United States. Again, it's possible that they're using money mules who have no idea that they're part of a scam. Hard to say. But uh, in this case, both bands who are mentioned in this article ended up not actually being scammed. They had their shields up in such a way that uh, they didn't fall for it. But, That's good. Uh, 
you can see how it would be easy to fall for this. And it's just interesting to me that they're targeting these musical groups. They've found a way to uh, try to come after folks for some big money. Right. And again, you can't be thinking hackers aren't interested in me, right? These people aren't, they are, they're interested in you because you have money. Right. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Constantine. He writes this first. He says, I enjoy the podcast and I find it not only useful, but entertaining as well. Well, thank you, Constantine. Very nice. Here is a seasonal fishing email from the Great White North. Mm. Sorry. Had to throw a sorry in at least once. But typos, (laughs) weird punctuation, and the way it was written don't make it any more believable. You can read it on the air, but Dave, you must do a Canadian accent, eh? Mm, Shouldn't that be sorry? Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Are you you ready, Hoser? I'm about to do it, yes. Okay, so... uh, you have a tax refund of Canadian 458 waiting for your previous revenue records. You received a letter from Canada Revenue Agency to make a refund to your account. Unfortunately, we were not able to process your information because of the details we have did not match, Hoser. Due to this issue, we have to re-verify your information. Make sure you complete the form correctly, as any mistake will take more time to process, and your tax refund will be processed within six to nine working days as claimed. Sign in, privacy and security, legal accessibility. Okay, eh? right? <laughs> right. So that's a short and sweet one, Dave. It gets right to the point. <laughs> uh, and uh, and Constantine is, is absolutely correct here. The, the punctuation makes this just almost unreadable. If anybody that listens to this, if, if you read this out in your head exactly as it's written, it quickly becomes obvious this is a phishing email. They're just trying yeah. to get you to go to this website and enter your credentials, probably for the Canadian Revenue Authority, whoever that is, and maybe file tax documents on your behalf to get some money out of the government. Yeah, yeah. who knows? All right, well, that's a good one. Uh, thanks to Constantine for uh, sharing that with us. We do appreciate it. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Stacy Nash. She is the head of fraud and central operations at USAA, uh, and we focused on uh, romance and sweetheart scams. Here's my conversation with Stacy Nash. Scams in general across the U.S., but quite honestly across the world, have increased over the last few years. If you think about going back to the infamous Target breach and some of the, the breaches that happened a few years ago, it was all around card data. And ultimately, over the course of the last few years, as we've kind of moved to chip and we've kind of closed that lucrative opportunity for criminals, criminals have obviously, I say all the time, I'm like, they're not going to go and get an honest job. They're going to try and figure out how to make money elsewhere. And scams have been actually something that they've kind of moved towards over the course of the last few years. Various things, I would say, employment scams. They're also opportunistic. So if you think about some of the pandemic and the virus, there's been a lot of scams around Um, PPE, and even some of the vaccine, and romance scams. So romance scams goes back to a few years ago, you heard about the emails that would come from a prince from a far off land. And it would be anything from, you know what, I want to come to your country, but I need your help. And this is what it's going to look like. And sometimes it was romance, sometimes it wasn't. And then couple that with the last few years, um, the prevalence of online dating and social media and meeting people that you think you actually know who they are because they post this very realistic looking picture and they create this persona online and you talk to them for days, weeks, and months and you establish a relationship 
And ultimately, at some point during that courtship, the relationship ends up, the person that you're in the relationship ends up asking for something. And it's either, most of the time, it's money, um, but sometimes they'll ask for even access. So access to your accounts, your PIN number, any like access passwords. And the roofs around that is normally, typically it's something to do with, you know what, I really want to be together. I want to live happily ever after. I just have to tie up a few loose ends on my end. Sometimes they'll go as far as to say they've got to actually care for an elderly parent or, you know, a relative and they don't want to leave anybody hanging. Whatever they can do to actually drive empathy and trust, they'll use. And the victim will send the money and never hear from them again. Now, what do you all track in terms of who these folks are targeting or are there specific groups that they go after? Honestly, I would tell you, Dave, a couple years ago, it was targeting more of our elderly demographic. But over the course of the last few years, there's been no discrimination in that anybody's open and an open target. Um, I've seen people that are in their early 20s all the way up to some of our more senior um, consumers all be the target of this. So anybody who actually you can find online and you can you know bring into a relationship is a target, unfortunately. Can you take us through what the process typically looks like? I mean, someone's minding their own business. They're monitoring their Facebook profile or Twitter or one of the other social media platforms. How do these folks reach out and establish contact? You just named one of them. So one of the most common is through social media. You think about, you know, even myself with my kids, I'm like, don't ever connect with anybody online that you don't know, that you haven't actually physically met and talked to, and you can attribute where you know them from. Unfortunately, you see people who have thousands and thousands and thousands of connections. and You think, wow, that person must have so many friends. Reality is they don't know a lot of those people. So in those situations, you've got people that you connect to, they're in your network. At some point, one of them might start talking to you. The relationship can move into just kind of niceties to eventually some kind of a romantic relationship where you're talking, you're talking, you're talking, and then that blossoms into something more. The other thing, the other scenario I would say is, you know, kind of moving away from just kind of your typical social media sites to actually going into the dating sites. So the dating sites where people will actually go in and, and you know, set up a, a profile and look like a legitimate individual and, and go from there. So it, it runs the gamut. I would even tell you, too, we've had situations where people will apply for jobs on legitimate job posting sites. And, you know, in some cases, it might look like an actual scam tied to a job opportunity. But in some of those cases, it can turn into okay, you know what, the, the position's been filled, but, you know, let's keep in touch. And all of a sudden the people keep talking and one thing leads to another and they think they've got a friend and or a relationship. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know what, we might have an opportunity here, but it's going to cost you $1,000. If you send me $1,000 for all the materials, we'll ship it to you and you'll be good to go and you can start working. So it's, it's all about building a foundation of trust. And as soon as that trust is established, they strike. What are your recommendations then? I mean, we're in a kind of a tough time right now. You know, people are lonely. They feel isolated. They want to feel connected to other people. What are some of the red flags? Anytime you're talking to somebody for any period of time and you haven't actually looked them in the eye, and I know in this environment, especially with the pandemic, you can look somebody in the eye virtually, right? We've got FaceTime, we've got Zoom, we've got all kinds of technology where I can actually look at you. I would say the first thing, don't ever give away anything, including personal information. 
like, you know, we're talking about sending money and giving PII and, and access to banking, but even just personal information from an identity perspective, I would be suspicious about sharing any information um, until I feel like, you know, I've quote unquote met the person. But especially if somebody asks me for money at any point, even if it's months in, I'm going to be suspicious. Honestly, Dave, maybe not for the interview. It might be because of the industry I'm in, but I've mm-hmm. seen so many stories where this is, you know, it's so prevalent. And I would say the red flag tends to be, you haven't seen the person, you haven't met the person. The other thing I would say red flag is if a story sounds too good to be true, it typically is. If it looks too good to be true, it typically is. I will tell you from a USA perspective, one of the things that, you know, we we see sometimes from our military community, and this wouldn't be unique to USA, but, you know, a a visual or a picture, a profile picture of a military, like a serving uh, woman or man, automatically invokes trust and respect. So the other thing I would say is, you know, if, if there's a profile that actually has that picture, I'd want to go really deep into understanding how that individual served their country, where they were, and then, you know, going back to my comment around meeting them, because I think that's another thing where these criminals know that by putting certain pictures up, they automatically gain trust and respect. Now, what are you all tracking in terms of folks reporting these things? Am I right in my understanding that there's a lot of embarrassment here, so these may go underreported? You're very right. Yes, there's there is some shame and embarrassment tied to it. I will tell you, um, the stigma is thankfully is starting to lift a little bit just because it has unfortunately become so prevalent. The other thing I will tell you is, you know, we have people who report or will call us right before it happens, which thankfully those are the calls that I know our organization and all the other organizations because I'm in contact with you know most of my peers at the other financial institutions. We would much rather have that conversation before somebody sends the money. And, you know, we'll take a call as an example that says, you know what, I just, before I do this, I just want to check, like, does this sound right to you? And we have the opportunity to say, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. But I would say that we still have those conversations where somebody will call and explain that they've sent money somewhere. And in some cases, they actually still think it's legitimate. And, you know, in cases, they might even be worried about the person because they haven't heard from the person. And that's those are the tough conversations where you have to kind of say, well, unfortunately, I'm I'm pretty sure you never will. You know, I I think you bring up a really good point, which is that uh, you would encourage people to call if they have a question. Right. I mean, that's part of what you're there for. That's part of the, the service you provide. People shouldn't feel like they're taking up someone's time or bothering somebody if they have questions about these things. Not at all. Not at all. At all. Like I would thousand percent rather take a call from somebody that says, you know, I read this, I got this text, I got this email, I received this robocall, whatever it is. You know, we're talking about romance scams, but regardless, anytime you get something that sounds suspicious or you're about to do something, especially when it involves divulging personal information, financial information, geolocation information or money, I would check in with your financial institution, especially if it involves anything to do with your banking or your finances, because we've unfortunately we've seen most of them. And to your point, Dave, that's why we're here. The number one mitigation we have against this, followed quickly by number two. One number one, though, is education, getting the word out, raising awareness, ensuring that people, to your point earlier, know that there isn't um, a reason to be embarrassed 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people fall for this on a regular basis, um, unfortunately. The second thing I would just say is, you know, hats off to our law enforcement community because, you know, they are fighting tirelessly with the banks to try and bring these criminals to justice. So those are the two things, you know, as, as much as this is happening, just trust that we're doing everything we can, not only to protect people, but also to actually go after the people who are doing this whenever we can. All right, Joe, what do you think? Great interview, Dave. Stacy makes a couple of uh, interesting observations. Carding is going downhill because we're moving to more chips. It's not going away because you can still do online purchases, right? So they still have value there, but it has become less profitable. And I love what she says here, that these guys aren't moving on to an honest job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Stealing's so easy and I'm so good at it. It's the only thing I know how to do. So that's what I'm going to keep doing. Mm-hmm. they're going to move on to this litany of other things they can do, and they are opportunistic. Romance scams have evolved over time. They've gone to the next level because of these dating sites and social media. And it's interesting that it's gone from an older person's scam to an all-ages show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- I think that is due, again, in large part to the fact that you now have these dating sites and social media apps out there. The attack surface for romance scams has expanded exponentially with the advent of these technologies. Right. It starts slow, and this is a long game for a lot of these scammers. They have a pipeline. You know, they have to be working with, like in a sales organization, where you do so many different cold calls every day, and then after you're done that, then you go and you nurture the next stage of your people. And at the end, there's maybe two or three of these that pay out, right? That And in sales, you think there's two or three big sales that you make. This follows the same kind of business model. These guys have to have that same functionality going on in their in their workflow and their in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And they strike at exactly the right time. That's common among a lot of these social engineering attacks. These guys know when it's time to ask for the money and how much to ask for. And they may have done their reconnaissance in the course of building this relationship to find out how much money this person has. You know what I would think would be hilarious, Dave, is Hmm. if uh, two of these romance scammers started working each other. I wonder if that ever happens. <laughs> right. Accidentally. Yeah. Right. I'll bet, I'll bet it does. It must. <laughs> that, yeah, it must. It has to happen at some point in time. Right. I like a lot of Stacey's advice here. Protect yourself. And if you haven't met in person, then don't connect with these people on social media. I like to have that on my on my Facebook account, right? Like if I haven't met you, you're not friends with me on Facebook at all, period. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case for like LinkedIn or Twitter. People can follow you on Twitter. You don't have to connect back to them. And LinkedIn, right. I mean, I have close to a thousand connections on LinkedIn and I haven't met most of these people, but a lot of them actually know who I am. They, they comment that they, uh, that they like this show and that's why they reached out. And I'm happy to connect with people who listen to the show. Uh, mm-hmm. it, LinkedIn is a different kind of use case, I think. So it, I don't know. I'm okay with that on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. but I'm not okay with that on Facebook. And the ask for the money is a big tip off. The other things that are a big tip off are stories that are too good to be true. Uh, we had a story a couple, a couple weeks ago about the guy who was scamming people in Los Angeles, who was an entrepreneur, a Bitcoin investor, a, a Navy SEAL or, or Green Beret or something. I mean, all right, the things he right. added up. Was just too too much, too much stuff, too much good stuff. Uh, if you have a question, call somebody. Uh, I, I like what she says about that. I mean, she works for uh, USAA, which is a either a bank or a credit union. I can't remember which one, but I think it's a credit mm-hmm. union. Call them up and, and say, hey, I, I think this might be a scam. Somebody's trying to get in. They're happy to hear that call. They love hearing that call much more than they like hearing the call. Hey, someone just scammed me out of $10,000. Right. right. They, they right. would much rather get that that first call. The number one prevention for this kind of thing is education. You just have to educate yourself and be educated. Know what's coming and be wise to the scam, if you will. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, our thanks to Stacy Nash from USAA for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. We'd like to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.